Hi everyone, I hope you're all safe and well. Welcome to this week's episode of the Economic History Podcast, where I chat with Professor Eric Monet of the Paris School of Economics. Eric is a macroeconomist and an economic historian and has written extensively on what we're going to talk about today, namely the Bretton Woods system devised during the Second World War. Before 2019, Eric worked for six years for the Euro system as an economist at the Banque de France. And we're going to talk a lot today about how central banks coordinated activity during those two decades after World War II until the end of the system in the early 1970s. The first paper we covered today as the basis for our argument is Eric's paper in the European Review of Economic History in 2018 called Credit Controls as an Escape from the Trilemma, the Bretton Woods Experience. We also cover his work in the Journal of International Economics with Damien Puy. That paper is called Do Old Habits Die Hard? Central Banks and the Bretton Woods Gold Puzzle. And that was published in 2020. The last paper we look at is called The Gold Pool, 1961 to 1968 and the Fall of the Bretton Woods System, Lessons for Central Bank Cooperation, and that's co-authored with Michael Bordeaux and Alain Neff in the Journal of Economic History in 2019. Without any further delay, I'll hand you over now to my chat with Professor Eric Monet. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Take care of yourselves. See you in two weeks. So Eric, I will start off today by asking the usual question. How and why did you get into economic history to begin with? I had a the chance to get a quite broad training in social sciences in a, in a study that I, um, I was involved before joining to economics. And um, I was actually doing my master's study and decided to turn to a PhD just before, uh, just before the financial crisis of 2000. Eight started, so it was uh, the spring just before that I decided to turn to PhD in economic history, studying the history of of, of central bank. And uh, at that time, I was a little bit dissatisfied, uh, I would say, by uh, the way macroeconomic policy was taught in uh, in economics uh, studies in, in, in the master. It was decided at the time that macroeconomic policy, financial liberalization, I reached. Or a, a stable equilibrium, but everything was uh, efficient, and uh, and especially regarding monetary policy, they were decided that now it could be gu- guided by pure science, and uh, everything was a kind of a end of history. So um, I, I I had enough, as I said, training in uh, in history or sociology to see that there was something to look at uh, beyond behind the veil. So. Um, I decided to look at, at, at this narrative to, to investigate, you know, what was before this period that was supposed to be the, the triumphant uh, victory of, uh, of the Taylor rule of, of this monetary policy with, with interest rates that started in the 1990s. So I decided to look at the, at the period before, in the 19, starting uh, the 1950s and 1960s after the World War II. At that time, it was a... Uh, it was a bit risky because uh, there was a strong reactions, especially from economists. You know, I remember uh, several of them telling me that it would be almost uh, meaningless to study a period where central banks were not independent. So it was so different that the, from the current context that it was uh, it would be maybe an interesting piece of history, but never relevant for any uh, any policy making and so on. But uh, but after the 
the financial crisis of 2008, things changed and people started to, to be more interested in, a, in this uh, history where central banks were much more active and were doing things that now are against the norm, buying public debt, doing targeting, targeted lending and so on. When you started out, Eric, was there ever a book or a paper that inspired you along the way or were there a few? So they were the, the usual standard references that uh, every people interested in monetary history or the international monetary system would read. Obviously, the, the, the Great Transformation by Karl Polanyi, the monetary history of the, of the United States by Fremont Schwartz or Golden Features by Icon Green. But when you ask these questions, I was... Uh, thinking about another book that I, I like to teach uh, nowadays, and I, although I did not do research exactly following this book, I think it's a, it's a book that still inspires me a lot. It's the book uh, The European Rescue of the Nation State by Alan Millward, which is actually the, the only economic history of European integration that we have. I mean, this is the only book that I've started to, to build a, a consistent narrative of, uh, of the, the start of the European Union built on, on an economic history analysis. And I, I really like to, to teach this, this book to, to my students here at the Paris School of Economics. And, and every time I think uh, they're quite surprised that this is still the, the only book about the topic. And also this is a book which is often uh, cited. You know, it, it has not been, you know, really taken as, as a source of inspiration for research, taken uh, quite broadly. I mean, the, most of the, of the arguments in the books are not fully tested yet. It's not, uh, it's cited, but uh, it's uh, still full of research potential. And the other reason why I, I really like this book, that I, I'm really impressed by, by the method and the writing of Alan Millward. I think he, he managed to combine a macroeconomic history, looking at the balance of payments, macroeconomic fluctuations, with political economy and especially the history of, uh, of policymaking in a way which is really impressive because you, you always shift between, between this like broad macroeconomic picture and then trying to understand how the policymakers reacted to this macroeconomic trends and started to act, taking into account a lot of, uh, of parameters and so on. And to do this, you need to master, you need to know very well economic theory and economic statistics, but also to know the archives and different levels of archives, understanding the policy-making decisions so well. And it's something that Alan Millward did uh, in a very impressive way, I think. Before we get into today's topic, which is Bretton Woods, you've already mentioned uh, buying up government debt, financial repression, targeted lending, that kind of thing. We need to know something about the macroeconomic trilemma. Could you just briefly explain what the open economy macroeconomic trilemma is as we see it in the textbooks. So this, this trilemma is uh, now kind of building block of macroeconomic um, uh, teaching, but it's also very important to study the Bretton Woods systems, uh, as you said, and uh, in particular because it was formulated during Bretton Woods. It was formulated in, in 1960s by Robert Mundell, and it has been extended more recently by people like Maurice Upsfeld and Alan Taylor. So most of the people will know actually the version of Upsfeld and, and Taylor. But there was this initial version built during Bretton Woods and it was not by chance that it was formulated in during this period because the main idea of, of Mundell, of Robert Mundell, was to, to study how domestic policy could be 
constrained by the international financial and monetary architecture. And all this was actually negotiated and discussed a lot, not only at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, but all along the 1950s and 1960s in, in the international scene. So the main idea, which is very simple of this trilemma, is to say that the countries cannot have three options at the same time. And these three options are uh, independent monetary policy, an open capital account, and a fixed exchange rate. So they need to choose two out of these three. And in terms of the Bretton Woods system then, which two options were available and what sort of pressures did that place on the system? The usual view of Bretton Woods is that during this, this period, 1950s, 1960s, the two options that were available were independent monetary policy and fixed exchange rate. So the option that was shut, that was abandoned, was the open capital account. This is a usual view on Bretton Woods that during that time, capital controls were the norm. And so countries could enjoy uh, monetary policy autonomy despite this fixed exchange rate. So I will, as we will discuss uh, further, I guess uh, today it was, it's a bit of a myth because of uh, there were some uh, open capital account and, and financial liberalization already during the Bretton Woods period. So how did this system differ from the way the gold standard operated, which preceded it? I would say there were four main differences between this, uh, this uh, Bretton Woods monetary system after the Second World War and the system that preceded, that I usually call the gold standard. So the first one, as we briefly just mentioned, is that controls on capital accounts and current accounts were now officially recognized by some international institutions that were built after the war, especially the International Monetary Fund. And so it was not um, a heterodoxy for, for the countries to, to use these kind of controls. The second thing was that actually these institutions, especially the, the international monetary funds, were created to provide short-term fundings to countries that faced a balance of payment crisis, I mean, exchange rate crisis. So instead of having to, to cope with these big crises, costly crises, the countries could now borrow from the international money funds, especially to, to adjust and to tame uh, this short-term crisis. The third important difference is was that now only the U.S. was pegged to gold. Other countries were pegged to the U.S. and only the, the U.S. has to convert its own currency, so the, the U.S. dollar, in gold on demand of the central banks. And the, the last uh, difference, which was something that was not negotiated at, at the Bretton Woods Conference, but was, what was important historically, that after the war, no other central banks now decided to, to convert their banknotes into gold. So gold was de facto demonetized and neither in the forms of coins nor in the forms of bullion could be used as, as money. It sounds so like this system, by having things like the IMF to manage balance of payments crisis, was really a way to avoid the coordination problems of the gold exchange standard in some sense, where you had sort of beggar thy neighbor devaluations there was much more of a coordinated system. Exactly. I mean, the, the idea of coordination was key to, to the system. I mean, we, we should never forget that the gold standard, that was still the reference for any discussion on monetary issues after the Second World War, was not uh, 
made after a conference. It was not negotiated. I mean, it was just like every country in the 19th century started to, to peg with gold. And then after the First World War, I mean, there was a conference in Genoa in 1922, but still, it was still a, a little bit of the anarchy in the way that country decided to, to go back to peg their money or then to use exchange rate or uh, exchange controls or capital controls. So, and it was, as you know, a disaster in the 1930s and it was viewed as, a, uh, as leading to the disaster of the Great Depression. So after the war, there was this main idea that coordination Coordination of the exchange rate, coordination of capital control was really key for the welfare of the global economy. Then in terms of your papers, you talk about internal and external targets. Can we have an example about how the two may have come into conflict with one another during the Bretton Woods system? So these two words, uh, words were, were used all the time during this period. I mean, central banks were think that they had the internal target, meaning the inflation rate. So they, they wanted to avoid too high inflation rates. I mean, they were still considering higher rates than today, but still they wanted to, to avoid hyperinflation and so on. And then there was this external objective, which was the, the fixed exchange rate, the exchange rate regime. So they had to play with these two objectives. The macroeconomic trilemma that we mentioned before explain there might be some conflict between these two objectives. So a typical example, which have been discussed a lot for this period, was the example of West Germany in the 1960s, where West Germany faced quite high inflation, uh, partly because it was imported inflation through the fixed central system. So they wanted, the central banks wanted to react to this high inflation by raising interest rates. But raising interest rates uh, central banks was also attracting capital flows because capital accounts were more open in the late 1960s. And when there was attracting capital flows, it leads to a, an appreciation of the exchange rate because uh, the German, the Deutschmark was more valued by the internal investors. So they were, when they were doing that, there was a, a conflict between stabilizing inflation and keeping the exchange rate stable. How did countries generally deal with these conflicts? So if you raise the interest rate, to, to tame inflation, so to speak, like you've just said, you run the risk of capital flows or gold flows or foreign exchange flows. High demand for your currency leads to higher exchange rates. How did countries generally deal with these conflicts? There are two options to, to deal with the conflicts. So the first one, which is the most well-known and, and the one discussed in the macroeconomic trilemma, is to use capital controls. So in the, in the case of West Germany, as just mentioned, Germany implemented these capital controls, so trying to, to avoid that capital flows freely between uh, different countries. But capital controls are difficult to implement and they not always uh, work. And in that case, they did not fully work because there were some already international uh, transactions in the name of euro dollars, so, so dollar deposits in German or other foreign banks. And so they could not cope with all these, uh, these flows. And the second option, was to use non-interest rate tool for monetary policy, meaning that the, the central banks started to, to fight inflation by using other reserve requirements, so especially in Germany or in other countries, uh, credit controls. So just to limit the creation of credit in the economy without raising interest rates. So in that case, they will avoid the second mechanism I mentioned before that will attract capital flows. So you can do that only if 
there is enough uh, banking regulation or financial regulation in the country so that if you increase reserve requirement or decrease credit, it will not transmit to other interest rates. And at the time, as you, as you know, I mean, there was heavy banking regulation, much more than, than today. So interest rates on deposit rate credit rates were regulated so the country could do that. And so the second option, which I, I named the credit controls in opposition to the capital controls, it's much more what, what I emphasized in my work because I thought it has been uh, clearly neglected in the, in the previous literature, but it was really important for all of these countries. So effectively, what you're doing is Instead of using the interest rate to control the money supply, you're actually just choking off the quantity of money in circulation. And by that means, you're keeping inflation down without even using any interest rate. Exactly. That's it. To understand that, it's not so difficult. You just need to remember that during the Britain, most countries were involved a lot in this economic planning where the state intervened a lot in credit allocation, in the financial market, and so on. So it's something that people who study Bretton Woods and just looking at the international monetary architecture sometimes forget that actually the way the international monetary system worked depends a lot on the way domestic credit systems were regulated. We hear this a lot when talking about the Bretton Woods system. What was the Triffin dilemma? It's not a trilemma system, it's a dilemma. It's uh, Another concept you cannot escape when you study a Bretton Woods system because it was very popular at that time. So if you read the financial press or, or uh, policymakers during this period, they, they very often mention it. So it was uh, coined by Robert Triffin, a Belgian economist working in the United States during this period. And the main idea of Triffin dilemma was to, to claim that the Bretton Woods system was not sustainable because of the gold backing of the dollar reserves. So there was a dilemma because since the U.S. committed to convert dollars into gold, they had to, to get this cover ratio. So if they printed a lot of dollars without increasing their reserves, then it would diminish, it would reduce the confidence in the dollar because people will then anticipate that the U.S. may devalue at some, at some point because there will be not enough gold backing. And if the U.S. was not doing this, then they will not provide enough dollar to the world. And so it will be deflationary for the world. So that's why Triffin called the dilemma. Either there will be a dollar crisis or either there will be deflation for the whole world. Now, unlike the gold standard regimes that had preceded Bretton Woods, as you mentioned already, countries were not required to back their currencies with gold. In new work, you show that many countries actually did hold or increase their holdings of gold. How might one go about explaining this theoretically? Yeah, so this is new new research that we published recently uh, with my co-author Damien Puy in the Journal of International Economics, where, where we show that indeed countries continued to back their currency by gold. So in effect, we show that the share of uh, currency in, in gold reserve was almost constant uh, during this period. So not only did countries reconstructed their gold stock after the war, but they continue to use their gold reserves as a, as a share of the, the currency in circulation. And so we try to explain that by referring to the fact that most of these countries, especially countries in continental Europe, so were not part of the Britain Woods Conference for obvious reasons, because they were at that time enemies of the United States and, and, and United Kingdom. Actually, they were clearly, they remain in the gold standard mindset. So for them, 
it was difficult to to consider having a monetary policy without any reference to to gold reserves. And it's something we also provide quite a lot of evidence in the speeches of policymakers that, for them, they needed an anchor. They still needed an anchor, and they were not ready to give up gold as a reference and only look at, at any kind of other reserves or another kind of anchor, could it be inflation, for example, or unemployment of GDP. We hear this a lot with central banks today. What did your test show about institutional memory? So we wanted to test this hypothesis, the fact that central banks who had more experience in the gold standard for which the gold standard have been more important in their historical practice of monetary policy, they were more likely to to back their currency in circulation by gold reserves. And so we, we show that we use a heterogeneity between countries because not all countries continue to back currency by gold reserves in, in the same way. Actually, it might not be so surprising for, for, for people accustomed to the history of Britain, but typically the, the continental Europe, uh, European countries, they, they really continue that because they had experience in the gold standard. And we also tried in a very crude way to measure whether this kind of institutional memory could also be complemented by more personal memory. Or the same given central bank, whether the head of the staff, or the governor of the central banks, had a long experience working in the interwar period of, or even before, whether it would, would change the outcome of, uh, of this gold policy after the war. So it would be a matter of generation, who would say that the policymakers, well, all their training, their early career in the gold standard, they could not give up on the gold after. And, and this is also something that, that we find. And as you say, this is something that is coming back uh, currently in a lot of debates on, on central banks. And people realize that this uh, the mindset, the training of central bankers have a lot of, of impact on, on the way they're ready to, to shift to a new model of central banking. The paper was called Old Habits by Hard. It was the people who had been brought up in the gold standard system or who had received their training, as you suggest, they're effectively more inclined to back their currencies with gold at those central banks. What does this imply for our understanding of the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system? So the most straightforward conclusion is that dollar and gold were never perfect substitutes. So um, this contributes to all this debate surrounding the Triffin dilemma that you mentioned before. Why is there still a debate on the Triffin dilemma? It's, it's just because that the, what could be the clear-cut evidence that is the, the end of Bretton Woods system does not provide an easy answer. Because... There is a big paradox at the end of Bretton Woods. That Bretton Woods collapsed because people, so international investors of the central bank, they lost confidence in the dollar. So the end of the system is first and foremost a dollar crisis. So there is a big loss of confidence in the dollar. But then after the system collapsed, then the dollar remains the dominant currency and actually even more than before. So this is a, the big paradox of Britain Woods that you cannot escape. And this does not you know, solve or give you an answer to, to the Trifon dilemma, because on one hand, you could say that it showed that, uh, that Trifon was right, because indeed uh, it showed that the link between gold and dollar was key. And once it was shut down, then uh, the, the, the systems could work normally. But on the other hand, you can also, also say that it showed that actually the dollar was... Uh, 
there was enough confidence in the dollar and that it was not at all a problem of the link between dollar and gold and problem in the confidence of the dollar. So it's still an open debate and showing that there, there was no uh, substitution between dollar and gold actually, you know, just change a little bit uh, the perspective and the way we should look at this because in the Twiffing Dilemma, you still take as given that other countries thought that there was substitution. And what we find is that actually it was like two different worlds were seen as, as different. In that way, it's also quite um, uh, consistent with uh, other recent work on Bretton Woods by uh, Catherine Schenk and, and Marais Avaro, who looked at not gold, but sterling, showing that uh, you know sterling was not even a competitor to the dollar during this period. It was just used in the sterling area is a legacy of the, of the British Empire. So um, there was sterling was still a symbol, an important symbol, but at the end, it was just a, a competition between dollar and gold, but competition did not mean substitution. And in other work, you've looked at the breakdown through the example of the gold pool. Can you explain what was the gold pool and can you explain how it operated, maybe with an example? Yeah, so the gold pool is not... Uh, is not so well known. I mean, it's not only to, to the specialist of the, of the post-war international system, but it's really key because it shows that actually the, the Bretton Woods systems never really worked fully because it worked only through uh, the cooperation of central banks that maintained the price of gold in a kind of a artificial way. So to understand this, you you need to remember that at the Bretton Woods Conference, when all this issue of the gold, the dollar, the sterling was discussed, there was no longer an international gold market. And most of the financial transactions were controlled, were not free. So it was difficult to imagine a world where gold would be actually free traded. And also during this period, most of the gold stock were owned by, by the US. But in the late 1950s, then the London gold market reopened. And then some countries now reopen their capital accounts, what is on the return of convertibility. And as it happened, there was a dollar crisis. So the first dollar crisis occurred in 1961. In 1961, the investors trying to bet against the dollar because they expect a devaluation of the dollars uh, regarding to gold. And so the US had to intervene on the London gold market. So selling gold and buying dollars, but it's quite costly. And so they managed to convince other countries that the gold dollar parity is a kind of public good and that all the main countries have interest to defend it. And so the, all the, the major central banks, so eight central banks at the time, they, they pulled together and they pulled all their interventions on the gold market to maintain the, the, the dollar price of gold. And it lasted until 1968. So it means that as soon as actually there is a kind of return to financial convertibility, the system is not really working. It's just artificially managed by this group of central bank. Again, it contrasts starkly with the interwar gold exchange where there was really lacking coordination or mutual support. What did your tests show in terms of the scale of intervention? We, we have studied this gold pool with um, Alan F. And, and Michael Bordeaux, where we, we recovered all these daily interventions and also the demand of uh, countries at the U.S. gold window. And we showed that the interventions of the gold pool were quite effective, actually. So this country managed to, to influence the price of gold as expected, but it was effective until it became too costly 
for the member of the gold pool. And it became too costly after the devaluation of sterling in September 1967. So in 67, there was a big crisis for sterling, which is quite a, a paradox. I mean, the sterling crisis led to a big crisis of the dollar. Because in the eye of investors, the idea that sterling, which was still seen as a, you know, as a symbol of the stability of the international monetary system, although it was literally used outside of the sterling area, when, when sterling entered crisis, there was this idea that it could happen for the dollar too. So then this created a massive run on the dollar, massive crisis for the dollar. And then all these countries that were intervening to maintain the dollar price of gold, it was too costly for them. So they gave And so the, it was the end of the gold pool. And the response of the U.S. was to create what was called a, a two-tier system. So it, it seems quite complicated, but it just means that actually they created a, a dual system. They let the, the market price of gold fluctuate without intervention. So it was the end of the gold pool. And then the dollar price of gold was only working for the price at which the U.S. will sell gold to central banks. So as long as other central banks were not asking too much gold for the U.S., the system could be stable. But still, there are a lot of historians that claim that this, the Britain system actually collapsed in 1968, where the gold pool collapsed and the system had to adopt this dual system or two-tier system. So now we'll just talk briefly then, Eric, about the end of the Bretton Woods system, the way we were taught it was usually something to do with the US printing too many dollars with the Vietnam War and investors losing confidence in the dollar. What is a more nuanced interpretation because of more recent work that you and others have done? Yes, yeah, so there is this, um, this idea, which is linked to the debates around the treatment dilemma, but that actually the system designed in 1944 could have been sustainable with this link between dollar and gold. If the US has pursued credible credible monetary of fiscal policy. The people who argue this way, they say they often refer to the example of Britain of England before the, the First World War, saying that actually the Bank of England has little gold and still it was highly credible. So you don't need to hold so much gold to make this credible. So it's a very difficult counterfactual. You would probably admit to, to say whether actually if the U.S. had pursued a different policy, the system could have uh, been sustainable in the same way with the same institution and so on. So I cannot claim that we fully answer uh, this question in our work, but we give a kind of more nuanced answer. So on, on one hand, in this paper with um, Alanis and Mike Bordeaux, we were able to show that indeed international investors, they reacted to U.S. inflation and U.S. budget deficit. So it was true that in the eyes of, of investors, the fact that the U.S. policies were, you know, assessed as more or less sustainable mattered for the price of gold. Then what does it mean? Because, of course, the, the old architectures were also depended on, on this. So it, it's difficult to, to imagine, you know, how things could have been different if the rules would have been different. And, for example, if the U.S. could have devalued or if the rules on gold reserves would have been discussed on the international side. I think probably you need to step aside and look at, have a different look on this debate. And, and, and the way we frame this is that when we talk about Britain systems, we should remember the circumstances when this system was designed. So it was designed where 
during the war, it was still the war in, uh, in June 1944, when uh, the United States and the United Kingdoms were clearly the main power. And at, at the conference also involved a lot of um, uh, countries in Asia, in South America, but not at all, and it's not, uh, it's not surprising, but all the enemies and continental Europe and Japan. And so they did not anticipate three main phenomena of the characteristics of the post-war era. And first, uh, it's really obvious, but this is a Cold War. So they, you know, they were nothing on the fact that actually the whole international systems became much more political and lim- linked to defense issues because of the Cold War and the role of the USSR. They did not anticipate the decline of sterling and more generally of uh, uh, English uh, economic power. And they did not anticipate the very important resurgence of continental European countries, especially France, Germany, and also former uh, war enemies like, like Japan. So all these countries that did not have a voice or a, a true genuine voice of uh, Britain, uh, Germany, France, Japan, ne- ne- Netherlands. So in the 1950s, 1960s, they were quite obsessed with the fact that they wanted to change the rules of the system because they were not involved at, at the beginning. So it's something that we, we need to, to take in mind in, in that case. So that these countries were all, always pushing the, the international institutions or the U.S. To, to change their policies in order to, to become more important in the international area. Eric, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, Shane. It was my pleasure.